Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is my friend Jennifer Ching, the executive director of the North Star Fund. We're going to talk today about decolonizing wealth and philanthropy. But interesting fun fact, Jennifer and I have one very interesting thing in common, one in particular, which is that we both do stand-up comedy, Asian women who do stand-up comedy. I guess we all want to be Ali Wong now. I don't know. Welcome, Jennifer. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your stand-up comedy, and your position at the North Star Fund. Big difference. Okay. I strive to be your level of actual identification for stand-up comedy, but I was basically forced by my colleagues to do an initial stand-up comedy routine since, and in their words, it appears like all I do all the time is make awkward jokes in every conversation that I can. So, um, so I did my first routine at the end of last year at Caroline's through an event that we had to support organizing in New York City with a number of just far better experienced and died to learn from comedians. And since then, it has been an interesting experience to think about and reflect what is comedic performance and particularly in this time. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> yeah, so interesting fun fact about that. And we're not going to talk about stand-up comedy, but number one, once this whole COVID thing is over, you and I are going to do a stand-up set, yes. open mic. And number two, I've tried doing open mic via Zoom and it is the saddest experience in the world because nobody laughs. And it's not clear if people don't laugh because they're not funny or if it's because everyone's on mute but in either case it's totally soul crushing yeah so i've pre-installed on this webinar a laugh track so that we can have it just playing in the background awesome i need that validation in my life especially since i haven't seen people in a really long time me and my dog and my husband in all seriousness though tell me a little bit about yourself and being the executive director of the north star fund my name is jen Cheng. my pronouns are she and her i have been at the north star fund for about a little over three years. But I think more relevant to this conversation, and this is my first job in philanthropy, and North Star Fund, which I'll describe in a little bit, is not even standard practice philanthropy, but I've really been on all different sides of working within the nonprofit, public, and private sectors. And so in my life, I have asked for money, I have begged for money, I have demanded money, I have transferred money, and thought a lot about my relationship as a nonprofit leader, as a manager, as an executive director, as a fundraiser and a resource mobilizer about all of the ways in which my discomfort with that role has emerged, has been a part of strengthening who I am, and also a part of really deepening why I so believe in dismantling the systems that we operate within. So just really, really quick background. I was born and raised in Jersey, went off to college, had a deep and broad political awakening, largely through my introduction into a community organizing program for youth in Boston's Chinatown. It really gave me a frame to put my own family's immigration and history and labor and health experiences into a context. So I was trained very young, very fortunately, as an organizer. I came up through both union organizing and immigrant worker center organizing in Boston and here in Chinatown. I then came in my early 20s to the recognition that, like, I don't know how to pay off my college debt. I don't know how to create a life for myself. So I did what a lot of people do. I went to law school. 
And after law school, I then returned to New Jersey and worked for several years supporting immigrant worker organizing at an impact litigation and community-based organizations. And then at that time, I came to the realization, I don't know how to pay off my law school debt and my college debt is actually aggregating because of this thing called interest. What? And so I then went into the private sector just shortly after 9-11 had happened and I had been working in the intersection between immigrants' rights and national security. And so I then worked both in the private sector, but also was fortunate to be able to litigate extensively around um, national security issues that emerged after 9-11, including for many years representing individuals who were held in Guantanamo and directly accused of terrorism. I mentioned that to say my trajectory, this all of this really influenced my trajectory in thinking about what organizing and law, what are the tools available to doing good, and how are those tools actually differently applied in the domestic setting, in the local setting, in the international setting. When I left law firm practice, I knew that I wanted to go back to a more local setting. I wanted to be in a more grassroots space. And so for about 10 years, I ran first a, a legal policy center that supported grassroots work and then a, a, a legal services program in Queens that provided direct services. So I've been, I'm the daughter of a social worker, so I've been on sort of the social services and the human services side, on the contract side, on the sort of government supported side of this work. I've also been on the sort of of the left um, in different set settings and have seen common threads throughout about how organizations are managed and how leaders are challenged and all of the different ways in which, especially being a, a woman of color, all of the different ways in which I was complicit in, participatory in, but also in opposition to these systems. So I chose to leave the law a few years ago when Trump was elected because I I had sort of just done a little bit of looking within and thinking about whether or not I wanted to be a lawyer fighting the system that I knew would exist in the Trump administration, or if I wanted to be attached to a different sort of fight. And so I left and came to North Star Fund, committing myself sort of for this you know, near future to really directly support the leadership of communities of color locally, building power expressly around systems change. That is a lot. You have been a warrior since day one. So tell me a little bit specifically about the work that you're doing at the North Star Fund. For folks who aren't familiar with North Star Fund, we're not a usual foundation. I know when people think of a foundation, they think of a, a board of trustees, maybe family that owns the money, and you think of staff and program officers and program directors, and you think of people who are saying like, we're really excited about this issue, and we think we should do this, and so we're going to open up this RFP. Now we invite you, and then all of us on the other side scramble and say, oh, you think green chickens should be provided services, 500 green chickens for $5,000? Yes, we'll apply and we'll, you know, serve green chickens. North Star Fund is actually uh, an organization that was started uh, about 40 years ago by individuals who were coming into inherited wealth, but who really wanted to disrupt what they saw as the real core challenges of family and private philanthropy and community um, foundations as well. So they created a model where really it's two things. One is we support exclusively emerging grassroots work that's led by communities who are most directly impacted by whatever challenges they're seeking to address. And the second is specific seeding of decision-making power. So the vast majority of the money that we mobilize and bring in are utilized by our volunteer community funding committees. And the volunteers are themselves community organizers with long and deep histories within the communities in which they work. And these community funding committees, one in New York City, 
one in the Hudson Valley, and one that oversees Let Us Breathe Fund, which is our Black organizing fund that, that supports work around structural racism and police reform. These three committees meet and actually set the strategies for who we fund, how we fund, et cetera. And so as a result of our accountability, both to movements and to issues, I would say we are known for and we practice a few things. The first is that we are often the first and have always been the first to formally fund emerging institutions. So there's really no major grassroots-led or grass tops or policy campaign that's happened in New York City over the past few decades that we didn't support in some ways when it was at a sort of a genesis period when people were coming together either within neighborhoods, coalitions, etc. So we are not afraid to take on challenging visionary topics that private funders issue. The second is that we just deeply believe in the sort of the subject of our conversation today, although I don't know that we would have said decolonizing philanthropy in much of the history of our organization, but we deeply believe in community sovereignty and community control of resources, and that the role of our philanthropic purpose is to move people to relinquish the control of the money that they have that is extractive and earned in ways that have damaged and just perpetuate a system of oppression to move and organize people to see interests as aligned through the lens of money and the money system. So our work is grant making and supporting organizers and building capacity of organizations, but our work is also to organize people across race and class around this common purpose around our common reset of a vision of a different way for us to relate to the money system. All right. There's so much here. I don't even really know where to begin. But one thing I've really been thinking about with this notion of decolonizing philanthropy is how related it is to white supremacy and white supremacy culture. And so I guess I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about I know that you've talked about there's an education piece that you do would be philanthropists who have the resources as well as people who are deploying it. So I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit to the personal education and change that you work on with people and then how those people affect systems? Sure. First of all, I want to give deference and credit to Edgar Villanueva, whose book, Decolonizing Wealth, which came out last year, I think has done a lot to popularize this question around decolonizing wealth, wealth systems, and then therefore decolonizing philanthropy. And in general, I think when we are using these words, it's very popular right now, I think, to like attach decolonize to something, and then people are like, ah, solved. When using this word, I really want to be clear about certain things. One is that we are all deep within a process of decolonizing implies a number of steps of which I think probably everyone who's joined this conversation is somewhere in that process. No one has completed or succeeded, right? It is both about the recognition of the systems around us and the system, as you say, Ria, of white supremacy, that is the overarching violence under which we make decisions that we make decisions that on the face may appear to be intended to be helpful and positive, but have undercurrents of harm and violence enacted histories of violence behind what we're doing. In addition to recognizing, of course, then it's about dismantling these systems. And then it's about finding a use for money and resources that is about healing, repairing, and a different vision for future that is in our perspective, one that's oriented around self-determination, community control, community sovereignty, and the leadership in particular of Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. That's a lot of words. It's a lot of 
jargon, right? And one of the things that I once heard Edgar say that I really appreciated that I think is actually, he noted it as a Lakota tribe principle, but I actually think as soon as he said it, I was like, wait, this is actually a Chinese principle. <laughs> you know, it's actually a Korean principle. It, the principle being, and I'm paraphrasing, that all suffering is mutual, but also all thriving is mutual, right? And I think that is our work, is to organize folks across race and class and gender and all identities to recognize that our suffering is mutual and that our thriving and the project to move us to thriving must also be mutual. And mutually held means accountable, means actionable, means practical. And so when I think about what this means within our role for philanthropy, I think one of the first things that we try to recognize and that we try to practice at North Star Fund is that philanthropy is not the practice of the wealthy, right? Churches, faith communities, community centers, YMCAs, United Ways, like people give. And if anything, this pandemic has shown that low-income communities are the first to give and the first to survive and the first to care for each other. The history of mutual aid is the history of survival economies in communities of color. And so our philanthropists, we all give, and we all give in a colonial mindset. We all give with discomfort around the power and the ownership of our money. And so it is also a collective project amongst all of us to think about what it means to decolonize our own approaches to wealth and our own approaches to giving. So at North Star Fund, we do this through programs that work directly with people to construct different understandings of how philanthropy has worked within the system of racialized capitalism. And then we also just do it more broadly in the sector of philanthropy itself. And we work with funders and staff and philanthropists and trustees to also try and change behaviors. So it's interesting, just before we popped on this call, I was on a call with someone who consults with high net worth individuals and foundations. And she was saying that one of the mistakes that she sees a lot is that people are really coming from this scarcity mindset, which to me, coming from the nonprofit side, I'm like, what do you mean? You're a foundation or you're a high net worth individual. Like, how can you have a scarcity mindset? You have all the money. So I guess I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit about how this scarcity mindset reinforces systems of oppression and racism? The conversations of scarcity versus abundance, I think, need to be separated in some ways from the concept of how much you're actually talking about, right? So abundance is not just something that I throw out to, say, the large endowed foundations or where you and I were talking about Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos' wife. Yes, certainly there are people who, of which there's abundance. But the concept of thinking about abundance goes back to, A, something I was just saying earlier, which is the incredible amount of wealth that communities of color, low-income communities, that is actually held, generated, created, and is the basis of a successful and thriving society, right? Again, the pandemic is showing that the world relies on the mass of the economy and of workers. The, the economy now is so separated from sort of those of us who can zoom at home and those who just traffic in the sort of abstractness of the stock market, right? We're just seeing that fissure in, in live time right now. But at core, scarcity and abundance is also about personal practice and personal practice in understanding how power appears in our thinking. It appears on the side of people who give money because the mind frame is always, if I give to here, then I don't have to give to here. Or if I give to you, then I am somehow losing what I had. 
as opposed to this gift is about mutual thriving, the thriving that we build together is actually a gift to me, right? So it's about that. And it's also practiced on the other side of the table from those of us who ask. It's about us saying, yes, I can do this work for pennies on a dollar. Yes, I can make this work. Please, I I'm sure this organization, they cost so much. So we'll come in at half their grant request. And I'm sure therefore we'll get this project or we'll get this. It's about all of us refusing to actually talk about the actual value of our labor, of our work, of our vision, of our intention, of what we've created, of our victories. It's about us therefore devaluing the cost of what it will actually take to dismantle and to create a truly different and equitable system. Yeah, you are speaking my language. I mean, so much of the work that I do with nonprofits is helping them to understand the value that they bring to the table. And I think when you come in, both with the scarcity mindset and believing that your work is not actually worth anything and that you don't have resources, it puts you in an automatically inferior position relative to somebody that you might ask for money. And instead, what would it look like if the relationship was about mutually combining and achieving something together. But it's hard, like it's very hardwired into our own narratives about money and the way that we were raised and the way that we grow up in the society. It's completely hardwired in. And I wanna be clear that everything that I'm saying today is the journey that I have been on to decolonize and build my own strength and muscle in this area. I have practiced all of the bad behaviors that I'm speaking to. And I'm super fortunate that my entry into philanthropy is not in a space that engages in a number of these practices, but I've been a witness to and been in some ways a victim to a lot of the sort of philanthropic control of money, whether it's highly restrictive grants or unknowing if it's multi-year or all of the reporting and the ask and everything that the dogs and the ponies and the pigs and all that we tried out. Along the way, as I've been on this journey, I have tried to implement different practices in highly restrictive settings. And so one of the big questions for you to ask yourself is, what is the power that I have to actually do something differently? And why aren't I willing to experiment or take that risk? What do I actually have to lose? And what is actually being lost in mass as a result of my refusal to engage in this potential risk? And those risks are relational, are professional, are financial, are leadership. But we're certainly in a time this summer where I think we can all comfortably say to each other that transformation is not only possible, but it is essential in order for us to actually survive. I'm just going to get down to nuts and bolts of things just because I'm a tactical person. So who gives the North Star Fund? Because I think some of what you're messaging is really different than what we've heard from traditional philanthropists or traditional foundations. And I'm just wondering, like, who is attracted to this message and who is really like turned off by the message? So the North Star Fund Giving Community, which is really in a sisterhood of social justice funds around the country, meaning we're all funds that are sort of place-based and support grassroots work where we are and raise the money to move to that work. And there are funds throughout the country, and I'm happy to share with folks if folks are wondering where there's one local to them. Our donors are as diverse as you can imagine. We have folks who give us 
$5 a year. And we have folks and institutions that give 500,000. It's it's a gamut. And I think the question of like, who's attracted to, and I don't know who's not attracted. I mean, I could make some guesses, right? But I think, of course, there are many people who are deeply uncomfortable with two things. They're deeply uncomfortable with giving money to an institution that centers the divestment of power as part of its process. And by uncomfortable can also mean unfamiliar, doesn't mean initially just no. And then of course, deeply uncomfortable with the centering of grassroots leadership from black, indigenous, and people of color communities. And I think both of those things, by the way, we are experiencing a sea change in understanding and nuance and questions over the past three years, starting with the administration, four years, and then the current spring and summer. Many, 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 many people come through our doors. We have people who have received an inheritance from their grandparents and want to just spend it all down, recognize the sort of done work and thought about how the money is rooted either in a history of slave ownership or other deeply systemic challenges. And so they want to spend it down. We have people who just say, I'll give you $20 a month. This is my role in supporting grassroots work that's closer to me. And we have folks who also give to us out of experimentation and curiosity. A lawyer is like, I always give to the ACLU and I always get, you know, I believe in impact. I believe in policy. I want to see the legislative wins. But then they understand and they see what's happening on the streets and they know that the legislative wins are actually the top and the end or the middle, in some cases, of very, very long fought, hard fought campaigns and years. And actually, we receive quite a bit of support from folks who work in human and social services who say to us, it's really my clients who should be leading. I'm like this against the dam. And what I really want to do is do my part to just remove the dam in general. Mm. And what I really like about that too, is that you don't have to have millions in the bank to be a philanthropist, right? So I often think that we equate your net worth with your value as a human, especially in the U.S. capitalist system. But then instead, what could it look like if folks like you and I could give $5 and be a philanthropist and see some impact? So I got questions coming in fast and furious. Jacqueline, welcome to Combo. Hi for being here today and for just sharing your insight. A lot of the work that I do is in the arts world and working with artists to help them not be dependent on nonprofits forever and ever and ever. And one of the things I see is a lot of what you're discussing. It's like this, what do they call it? Like the nonprofit industrial complex or whatever. Like, it's just like, they want people to be dependent. They never reach the mission. And so I want to know Where are you seeing some good synergy between artists and people in the philanthropic world who are really saying like, no, the goal is for you as an artist to be, to find commercial success. Are you seeing that anywhere in particular, or are you seeing it in other places where there are people who are really trying to make sure people can get to a place of completing their mission and who's doing it really, really well? That's a great question. And I'm going to first say, I'm not an arts funder or our program. We fund activism in support of art, artists, activists in certain situations. But, but we sit outside what I think, as you say, not only the nonprofit industrial complex, but probably the cultural institutional industrial complex. So one thing that I will say, though, is that there are organizations, and Jacqueline, are you in New York? I'm in Pittsburgh, but I'm connected deeply to New York. New York is one of the places I call home. I think about spaces like the Laundromat 
project, I think about spaces that are Black-led, people of color-led, that are, as you say, changing the relationship between artists and the capital that is essential for artists to survive. There's a side conversation that I think a lot of us who are in the work of nonprofit stuff find probably very distasteful, and that is the question people are always asking us, is just, how do you make your work sustainable? If I give you three years grants, I want to know at the end of that you've somehow made it sustainable. And my answer was always like, how am I supposed to make it sustainable? I'm not selling widgets and wedgets, right? I, like, I'm going to make it sustainable because I got to find someone else to fund it, right? So it's actually unsustainable by the mere definition of you creating, controlling the way in which I receive the money and how I spend it. It is unsustainable. So there are models that I think are emerging in this time around what community ownership and community practice can look like when it comes to resources, right? So I'm thinking about the long history of rooted in sort of community development financial institutions, but as they begin to become more expressed towards how do we actually create spaces of ownership for artists and cultural workers that is free from either heavily restrictive and extractive philanthropy, patron models, et cetera, and I see those projects linked to spaces like land trusts, which in New York are less about actually purchasing land, but about purchasing buildings or spaces and creating sometimes problematically, perhaps wealth perpetuity models to allow to fund and hold those spaces. But I think the flip side of that, like thinking outside of just like, what are the alternatives to the institutions that we know, the typical museum or other space, flipping that I think is the need, I think within the arts, community to actually change the relationship to money. That the arts community is in some ways the leader, is leading the rest of advocacy and the nonprofit community into the framework of, of decolonization, but also is still the one that is most heavily dependent on the board that is the millionaire, billionaire, 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 right? On the, the dependency of corporate sponsorships, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a space where I think both sides of that work have to happen and are complementary, and we should actually be in deeper partnership with each other as we send out these messages. The mass mobilizations of this time have, of course, have some roots in the decolonize this place unfunded movement in New York City, which was an arts-focused movement at its core. And I think that is such an instructive thing for us to remember that arts and culture and narrative change are an essential part of our ability to even begin the decolonized project in the first place. One question I have is, as folks that are working in the nonprofit sector, our relationship to foundations and wealthy individuals feels very much in this colonized framework, let's say. And I guess I'm wondering, Jennifer, if you could speak a little bit about what can folks in the nonprofit sector do to even engage in these conversations with traditional funders? I feel like in the last couple of months, there's been a lot of like, oh, wait, what? Racism is a thing? Oh, like white supremacy is a thing? Whereas those of us working in the trenches and in the field have really been seeing this for a long, like we've known this for a long, long time. And so how do we even start to move that conversation at the same time that we do feel this dependency on like this foundation who's going to give me money in order for me to do the work? I think it's such a multi-level process. I would say you have to know yourself, know your story, know your path. And you also have to know your frame, know your analysis. And then you have to know your work and sort of combine all three ways into being unapologetic 
but clear, gracious, and thankful, like gratitude, yeah, sure, is a practice. Being grateful is not necessarily a colonized practice, right? Being grateful, but being certain. And implementing, I think, into a transactional and likely extractional relationship, your dignity and your self-determination. These are very challenging things. I grew up with some financial insecurity and in a fairly class diverse family. And so my deepest, hardest memories are about asking for money and are are about disclosing not having money. And so then to be now in the profession where I, I have to center this as part of my daily work is A, possibly something I should deal with in therapy, but B is also about knowing what has enabled me to be able to move forward and be successful as a resource mobilizer or whatnot, whatever terms, is because knowing my frame, knowing my analysis, and then practicing, 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 and moving with a deliberate speed around it. All of these things, I know they sound abstract, but what I'm saying and suggesting is that you actually ask yourself these questions in the course of your work, when you're presented with an RFP, when you think about who or what you're applying for, when you have an opportunity to speak with your donor, that you actually ask yourself these questions and you actually frame for yourself, what are some of the things that you feel must be said that are hard for you and try to practice. North Star Front, actually, we have a community of practice around this work, but we have actually a six-month cohort every year called The Giving Project where we bring people together across from different backgrounds and essentially just with the invitation to come learn about how philanthropy is rooted in racialized capitalism, come learn about sort of what grassroots fundraising looks like and learn and lean into your own power to raise money from your networks and your community and then practice the work that you'll support, the grassroots advocacy community of North Star Fund. Every year I've been astounded by the 20 odd people who come through this program, everyone comes in saying, I'm scared to fundraise. I don't want to fundraise. I don't want to come to the fundraising session. I don't want to come talk to you individually about my fundraising. Right. And every year this group gets through it together, working with each other, practicing off of each other. And this past year, uh, Kelly's group, they raised over $260,000 in just a few months from over 600 people. And so it just speaks to the wealth that we are just walking around with and taking for granted every day and how transformative we can be if we make it a collective practice. So I do have a question for you. As a fundraiser and as an executive director, obviously a big part of my job was fundraising to make sure that we could pay for the work that we did. And especially near the tail end of my tenure, I received a lot of pushback, usually from my younger staff members, about the money that we received, right? And and there seemed to be like this kind of ideological purity about why would we take money from Goldman Sachs? And my first response really is like, well, in the US, like what money is actually clean? Like it's all dirty money. And my response was like, and what more revolutionary thing could we do than to take this money and do some social good with it? So I'm guessing curious, like how would you approach that conversation? Because at the end of the day, like, I can be ideologically pure and say that I won't take money from people that I perceive as being extractive and racist and so on and so forth, but then can I fund the work? This is, I think, a really key question that leaders across nonprofits right now, if you haven't had these conversations, I think you really need to 
step into this space and talk about it. And I think, first of all, I want to say, I learned a lot from questions that my staff asked me about money and how money came in. I came into being an executive director thinking that as long as I just brought the money in people and kept people's jobs and kept our mission going and flowing, that that's really my work. But over the years, actually working with people who elevated really core questions about the source of money, the practice of money, what we were doing, how we were talking about our work, from whom we were choosing to fundraise, these actually all really helped me reframe and rethink a number of core questions. So the first step that I think is really important for folks who are leaders within their organizations and leaders are at all levels, are you talking about it? Is there transparency? What is the actual knowledge about how the organization mobilizes resources? A lot of times I think, well, you know, when I was a staff attorney, I didn't know where the money went. I was like, that's their problem. That side of the office that I only walk down to when they need me to tell them about a client's really amazing story or something. But I think making a collective understanding about what organizations need to do and how they have framed survival in the past is essential to then make a collective agenda for the future. I think it's just really important for us to have these conversations. And I don't know that I judge either way how an organization lands. I just think you need to have this conversation and it needs to be in the context of an organization actively dismantling likely proliferate racist and white supremacist cultural practices, right? Because organizations where there are disruptions about money the disruption itself is usually more a reflection of white supremacist cultural and management practices within the organization itself. And so it's also about like, where are our failures within our institution that we also need to address in order to rebuild and reframe a culture that centers on equity that then allows us and gives us the vocabulary to have these complicated conversations. So all of these things have to happen at the same time. And I think if an organization decides we're not going to take Sackler family money or board of an institution that doesn't take money from financial institutions, the clarity, the analysis, the frame is essential to kind of then understand then what, where do we move? Now at North Star Fund, I would say we deeply understand but we also, because we are in an active working relationship with people about their money, as you say, like all money is bad and tainted. And so my joke often is, well, you can consider us money launderers because we are there not to erase the history, but in fact, to actually amplify it and to therefore allow that violence, not to dictate, but to create the causal chain to change how that money will be used in the system going forward. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Hi, Ruth. Hi, nice to meet you. This has really been um, so amazing to hear. I am in a, sitting in a philanthropic seat, sort of, for the first time in my life after being on the practitioner side for 20 years and started right before COVID, and I'm just trying to make sense of it all. And I'm sitting in a place that's not, I'd say, actively necessarily tackling these issues head on and just thinking a lot about for those of us who are sitting in places that aren't ready to tackle this head on, thunder seeks, what are the small steps that we can start to take with leadership to bring these questions to the forefront. And I guess I'm also sort of balancing that with like, if it's not sort of, I kind of feel like when I sat in the EDC and I was sort of like, do I work with my board or do I just sort of move forward? And without, I, I'm struggling with whether to try to work with the leadership of the foundation or just sort of do what I can for my seat to make sure that 
we're reaching folks who might not traditionally be reached as grantees. And if I do decide to tackle it more head on, what are the first steps to take? Do you know what I mean? Yes, that is such a great question. And I actually think it's analogous to so many situations, even if people aren't in philanthropy, right? And the question that I distill from yours is, when I move into a new setting and I also amass a different set of power and a different set of gatekeeping skills, but I still don't necessarily have the power to influence the sort of trajectory of the institution overall, like, where's my starting point? What do I do? First of all, I think, particularly in the philanthropic setting, but across nonprofits right now, there is the most elevated moment of reckoning and recognition ongoing right now, right? If you are working in a setting that has not questioned its commitment and purpose around equity, around anti-Black racism, then there needs to be an introduction. And someone has to be the first to introduce these hard questions. So part of it is for all of us to put on our organizer hats, look around our relationships within our institution, think about who do we have, who are our allies, who do we want to listen to, who should we cede power to, for those of us who have power, who should be leading these conversations, who are effective messengers and support. So some of it is just about sort of power mapping our understanding of our workplace Mm -hmm. and creating a practice plan around that. For those of us who have outfacing roles and therefore we have that ability to at least improve the experiences of those who engage with us, whether it's grantees in your case, right, or other constituencies. Yes, of course, I think that's absolutely essential. So many times practitioners move into philanthropy, it makes sense. You have the subject matter expertise, you will be seen as someone who's been in the hot seat and therefore more humane, but we bring in all of the sort of, dare say, traumatic, learned, terrible behaviors, and then we just reinforce them because we don't really know what else to do. So sometimes the practitioners who go into philanthropy are the worst because they just end up kind of recreating and in some ways solidifying those circles of ineffective and damaging behavior. So some of it is about then disrupting what do you know of yourself? What would you have wanted to do? Like write it down. What would you have wanted to see? I would have wanted to see multi-year general operating, automatic renewals, no very, very little reporting requirements. I would have wanted to have open and honest conversations about challenges that I was having additional resources for disruptions like transitions, et cetera. Like all those things are often within the control of a program officer or a portfolio manager or whatnot. So there's a way to kind of lead sometimes with practicing values. And then there's a way to lead kind of with ideology and theory. And there's a way to lead with sort of accountability and urgency because of the times. And all three, I think right now are in play and really sit in tandem with each other. And different people in different seats of power within an organization are going to be responsive to different strategies, but all of those strategies, I think, have to be employed right now. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm sitting in an odd seat as a fellow and not a program officer. So yeah, not a direct influencer, but that's okay. There's certainly a way to to think about bringing a lot of what you're speaking about in. So it's definitely making me think a lot. I would also say there are all different ways in which we have direct influence. And thank you so much for sharing your role. And 
fellows are brought in because they are deemed to be sort of the intellectual, right, the vanguard leaders, right, on a subject or a topic or a practice. So I also feel like, and fellows have, maybe you have more flexibility because your role yeah. is one that's, that's across. So there's also different ways in which you are the perfect person to introduce perhaps themes or practices or shifts or needs because you are looking, you are the bridge between the institution and the outside world that the institution is trying to influence or gain a footing in or have its own expertise developed in. So, I have a question coming in. Hi, everyone. Um, Hi. I am sort of thinking about board relationships and how to sort of manage a board through these conversations, particularly just on the sort of individual giving piece. And I guess the sort of balance of recognizing people's contribution, but also sort of pushing on what it all means and how it all fits together and how we may be perpetuating systems that we're actually trying to dismantle. And particularly, I think one thing I've struggled to figure out how to talk about is the idea of centering supporter or the funder versus sort of centering students and focusing on strength, a sort of an asset-based and strength-based approach to our students and our communities while still acknowledging the sort of individual contributors need for sort of emotional connection to the whole thing. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Absolutely. So I do think right now we're in a, and I know I've said this a number of times in the call, but I do urge leaders. So raise your hand if you are a nonprofit leader where the staff and your constituencies, your stakeholders, you're not your boards and not your donors, but where you have had for the, over the past few years, you've been doing building anti-racism work. You've been talking about equity. You've been thinking and examining all of your processes, right? You've been doing that kind of as a work around the board and you kind of like, you've been in the middle, right? Like kind of just trying to, I imagine that's a number of us, right? Where the sort of board is the last to fall and the challenges of how, as a leader, you can lead your board into these conversations. Now, I think, is truly the time because there's just so much visibility around the questions that people have about what is happening and why is it happening and how am I implicated in it, that there's a way, I think, for us to approach these questions from a space of self-growth, organizational growth, organizational relevance, leadership relevance, that I think resonates more now than perhaps it has before. And I am someone who has been engaged in trying to bring equity work and anti-racism work into nonprofits for a very long time and have had been both yelled at and yelled at people. It's, we're in a long history, and this is one of those, I think, moments, the sort of blowing, separating of the curtain from the window where I think if you don't seize it, mm -hmm. it will pass. So my main recommendation, of course, is that you've got to get people together talking and you've got to get people together and talking in a responsible way, meaning the organization needs to do work to determine what is the frame, what is the analysis, and how will we support people, and that includes financial resources, and that includes asking the board to support them financially, this process. And there are many, many, many different approaches practiced by many different sorts of consultancies and collectives and collaboratives, but it's essential to craft a strategy that integrates the leadership and stakeholders, including donors, into understanding. Because all of this is dependent on a radical transparency, because if it continues to happen as sort of like, oh, we're just cleaning up in-house, there's no accountability. And then the sort of worst practices will actually just become renamed and just move over and be practiced under a different rubric. So if you're really trying to change and shift culture, it can't be done without all of that. Yeah, it's uh, dismantling is messy and it takes a lot of time and effort and 
I mean, it took 400 plus years to assemble it. It's going to take some time to dismantle. I have a co question coming in from Shagufta. Hi, Ria and Jen. Thank you. Hi. For, so I actually was in the nonprofit sphere in Raleigh, North Carolina. And something that really kind of concerned me is just the traditional grant making and traditional grant application process. The amount of times I would be writing grants, but then be in rooms that were not representative of either folks of color or it was just predominantly white folks. It's not a bad thing, but it's difficult to talk about what the nonprofit's cause is if there's like a whole kind of barrier as to explaining what your cause might be. So my question is, how do you address the issue of who gets funding and just the traditional methods of grant applications? Is that something that needs to be like changed or kind of reevaluated as to who's in the room, who's looking at these applications and what evaluation methods are being examined? Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I don't know if you're still in the Carolinas, but there is a new grassroots fund that is centering the decision-making processes of communities of color in the Carolinas. I think it's called the Cypress Fund, so it just might be a model to look to if you're still in the geographic region. But to your more direct question, all of these things, I think, are essential. You're absolutely right that part of the reason why philanthropy has been able to enact the sort of violence that it has is because for so long, it's just been a closed door enterprise. And as philanthropic institutions like the rest of the world diversify amongst its ranks, it's telling about who controls what, who rises where, right? We see all of the same societal challenges to moving from diversity to meaningful equity within philanthropy, right? So it doesn't matter how many people you see on the website who are of color, right? The question is really still who is holding the power and who holds the power over whom. So all of those challenges are still alive, but there are many philanthropic spaces and networks that are devoted to both amplifying and building the leadership of people of color within philanthropy, and then also amplifying and building the frame and understanding for philanthropy to do its work differently. So there are a number of different professional organizations that I'm happy to send them, but there are also collective and learning spaces. And all of those institutions and networks are building their own movement within the sector um, and building that movement as informed by grantees and by advocates and by the constituents themselves. And so some of them are very formal kind of like spaces like neighborhood funders group. Some of them are more about individuals themselves like EPIP and APFI and APIP. And some of them are about actually expanding political education. Just Funders comes to mind or spaces like North Star Fund where we are really trying to root an understanding of philanthropy in a different sort of praxis. Right. Thanks so much. So we are unfortunately right at time. So tell us a little bit about where folks might be able to find more information about this if they want to read up or connect with you or connect with North Star Fund. Yeah, please follow us on social, North Star Fund. Yes, you can find us online. Our resources are online. A lot of our community resources are all there as well. We love to be in relationship with people in the nonprofit world to support this. There are lots of spaces where you can learn about practical strategies around what funders are doing to change their work. There's a national network called Trust-Based Philanthropy that is an opt-in kind of foundation and family philanthropy space where people are learning about this work. Some of the institutions that I just mentioned, I'm happy to 
shoot me an email, I'm happy to, to send you resources that I know. Um, the flip side of decolonizing philanthropy is for us to decolonize fundraising. And I know probably most of the people here follow Lula on social media and kind of like we all have a lot of the one-liner ways that we want to change things. But the whole, I think his project and allies and supporters and all of us, what we're actually trying to do is attach very, very practical shifts to this. And as I said, the first shift is actually for us to have our own reckoning and then to begin to develop what that shifted message feels like and then going out there into the world. That's awesome. Thanks, Jen. And I'll make sure to get those resources for you and post it in the podcast. Thank you, Jen, so much for all of this. There's a lot to think about. And of course, so generous that you're offering to connect with folks offline. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for all you do, Ria. <laughs> right. Thank, Thank you. you.